ora, I'm Bonnie Harrison, and welcome to the Details Long Read. This week, a story from White Fungus, which is a Kiwi-run, Taiwan-based arts magazine. It's called Strange Days on Lake Rotomahana, and it's an account of the violent end of the pink and white terraces, once New Zealand's very own wonder of the world, now vanished from the face of the earth. The story is written by Tim Bollinger, and what you're about to hear is an abridged version. You can read the full story at whitefungus.com. This is Strange Days on Lake Rotomahana. Famed for their rare, romantic beauty, the pink and white terraces of Lake Rotomahana were promoted to 19th century travellers as the eighth wonder of the world in the earliest days of New Zealand tourism. Overdressed in their Victorian finery, a parade of wealthy foreign visitors arrived by schooner, stagecoach, whaleboat and canoe to visit these naturally formed terraced pools in the heart of the North Island's Hot Lakes District. Their vivid descriptions, a handful of paintings and a shoebox of photographic postcards are now all that remain of this geological wonder, lost to the world forever in a single night of violent volcanic destruction. British settlement after 1840 brought a wave of change for the Te Arawa people of the North Island's thermal region. The remote geography of the volcanic plateau initially protected the Tsuhaurangi and Ngatirangi Tihi tribes from the full impact of the European incursion. But visitors soon found their way to the shores of Lake Rotomahana in search of the fabled pink and white terraces. Rotomahana was a small, steaming lake adjoining Lake Tarawera, rich in waterfowl, no more than a kilometre and a half long. In two places, volcanic terraces of coral-like silica stepped elegantly down to the lake's edge, created from the trickling waters of hot mineral springs cascading into the lake for over a thousand years. The terraces provided hot pools for bathing and a wondrous spectacle. New Zealand's tourism industry was born here. Te Tarata, the expansive white terrace, is translated loosely from Māori as tattooed rock. In geological terms, it was a white silicious cinta apron. It fanned out like the tears of a giant wedding cake from a deep, azure blue, bubbling geyser pool 30 metres above the lake. Te Tarata covered a stretch of seven and a half acres with pooled terraces of varied sizes, described by one visitor, Lieutenant Henry Bates, a Scottish sheep farmer, in 1860 as almost too beautiful for this world. Herbert Mead, a visiting English naval officer, said that to convey an idea of its beauty is impossible. Others tried. Bishop Selwyn in 1843 likened it to a frozen waterfall and Stevenson Percy Smith, a government surveyor, to an immense surf, 60 feet high, just after it had broken. Its multi-patterned and coloured crystalline surface that shone white in the sun was described by one international traveller as a collection of all the precious stones in the world, and by another as a raised fretwork of stone, as fine as chased silver. Visitors ascended the terraces as if climbing a giant staircase. A Dr Johnson wrote, 
The steps commenced, almost imperceptible at first, but gradually increasing in height and breadth as we ascended. We had taken off our shoes as the water flows to a greater or lesser depth over the whole surface and found the temperature most agreeable. Te Otu Kapuarangi, the smaller but some say more beautiful pink terrace, translated loosely from Māori as Fountain of the Clouded Sky. Its summit was also a deep pool and geyser, but its surface was smoother and its buttresses steeper to climb. Painter Charles Blomfield wrote of the Pink Terrace in 1876, The colour is the chief attraction. With the morning sun shining brightly on it, it is almost white, but when the sun gets round and you get more shadow, the lovely salmon colour is very marked. The overhanging lips of the basin are exceedingly beautiful and graceful. In the mid-19th century, only the privileged could afford to visit the remote terraces of Rotomahana. The most frequent visitors were overseas tourists and officers of the British regiment, all served to promote the legend of the terrace's wondrous beauty and form. By the 1880s, the Hot Lakes District had become an integral part of the grand tour of the colonies for British high society. Three chiefly Tsuhaurangi families guarded and cared for Lake Rotomahana and its thermal attractions. The Rangiheuea family had several dwelling places within the vicinity, notably at Te Ariki, and were its principal custodians. Chief Rangiheuea spent winters on the lake at two small, flaxen-brush-covered islands populated with reed huts. Local Māori understood the hot springs' medicinal properties and visited the islands to bathe in their healing waters. The other caretakers were Chief Wikepa Terangi Puafe's people and Aporo Te Farikanifa's family, Ngāti Hinemihi, guardians of the beautifully carved and painted meeting house Hinemihi on the shores of Lake Tarawera. Wikepa was the senior chief of the district. Based latterly at the village of Te Wairoa, Wikepa's tribe provided guides and water transport for the visiting tourists, while Aporo and his wife Ngareta led haka parties who performed and sang for the visitors at the meeting house. Custody of the terraces was periodically challenged and disputed by two Haurangi's neighbouring cousins, Ngati Rangitihi. All were of Te Arua, tracing their descent from the same ancestral canoe. Rotomahana was one of the smallest in a chain of volcanic lakes, including Rotorua, Rotoiti, Rotoma and Tarawera. In places boiling, the lake itself was warm and swampy, with the occasional spout from a puya or geyser rising from beneath its surface. Besides the terraces, other unusual craters, puya and fumaroles dotted its surroundings and encrusted silica pavements flanked its shores. Above the lakes towered the vast black hump of Mount Tarawera. The mountain's three pinnacles, Rua Wahia, meaning split or cloven hole, Wahanga, or bursting open, and Tarawera, or burnt cliffs, were formed by the extrusion of rhyolite domes and pyroclastic debris over thousands of years. There was no oral record of volcanic eruption, but the names of its peaks suggest some dim ancestral memory. Te Arawa mythology told of an ancient and fierce cannibal spirit, Tama o Hoi, subdued and locked in the bowels of the mountain by a tohunga, or high priest, 
of the Arawa Canoe, who was credited with bringing volcanic fire to the Hot Lakes district. In geological terms, the imperfectly cooled mass of lava that still lay in the heart of Mount Tarawera gave rise to the thermal wonders at its feet. Tarawera was, and still is, considered highly tapu for the local people. The mountain's burial grounds were the final repository for the bones of their tsupuna, and only with difficulty did Europeans first obtain permission to ascend. Neither food nor tobacco was to be consumed on its slopes. While being surveyed for the government by Stevenson Percy Smith, himself a pipe smoker, in 1873, the mountain was enveloped by mist. His party was forced to turn back twice before he respected the mountain's tapu by leaving his tobacco behind. On another occasion, some young local men collected the honey of wild bees on the mountain. Guide Sophia Hinerangi later recounted that all who ate it perished in the 1886 eruption, while those Tuhorangi who had refused, including herself, did not. In 1843, Pioneer missionary Seymour Spencer from Menden, Illinois, arrived in the area with his Philadelphia-born wife, Ellen. They founded first the mission station of Kariri, or Galilee, on Lake Tarawera, and later Te Wairoa as a model Māori village in a fertile valley two miles away, also by the banks of the lake. Te Wairoa would become the gateway for travellers on their way to see the terraces. Among the earliest European visitors was Governor George Grey, who visited the terraces in 1849 and was hosted by Reverend Spencer and his wife. Grey proposed to erect a hospital in the Hot Lakes district, probably at Ohenemutu, due to, quote, the efficacy of the waters for obstinate rheumatic afflictions. Reverend Spencer's wife, Ellen, noted the healing capacities of the local Māori were much faster than those of Europeans, and native visitors to the area sought comfort for their illnesses at Lake Rotomahana. By 1859, the colonial government was beginning to take an active interest in the geological wonders of their newly claimed domain. In that year, German-Austrian geologist Dr Ferdinand von Hochstetter visited Rotomahana to survey its surrounds on the government's behalf. Hochstetter had been assigned to map the lake and the whole volcanic region, one of the few to do so before 1886. The terraces, Hochstetter reported, baffled description. The people of Te Wairua were now exploiting the commercial opportunities that the terraces provided more systematically. In 1860, Lieutenant Bates described being much impressed at the march of civilization as shown by a board which stood at the entrance to the settlement and with which large words inscribed the rates the natives required for travelling as guides to Rotomahana. Visitors remained dependent on the hospitality of local Māori until the first hotels were established in the mid-1870s. Around this time, there arrived at the terraces a middle-aged woman named Sophia Hinerangi. Originally from the far north, Sophia was to marry into the Tuhorangi and become one of Rotomahana's principal tour guides. Historian Jennifer Kernow describes Sophia. Well-educated and bilingual, she arranged the tour parties, supplied visitors with information, settled accounts, organised the other workers, 
and was a guide, philosopher and friend to thousands of tourists who were fortunate enough to obtain her services. Guide Sophia appeared to possess the spiritual powers of matakite, or supernatural insight. In the early 1880s, when a local stream on Tarawera rose rapidly to unprecedented heights, alarming people of the threat of flood, Sophia saw a giant ngārara, or lizard, struggling up the stream. No one else saw the creature, but many believed her. Organised guiding was a profitable profession. The boat journey to Rotomahana cost two pounds. Permission to take photographs or make sketches, another five. The young men of Tsuhaurangi were rostered on whale boats, up to 12 at a time, to ferry the tourists across Lake Tarawera. From guiding and boat fees alone, it is estimated that the tribe had an annual income of £6,000. The commercial proficiency of the Tsuhaurangi was not welcomed by all comers. Charles Spencer, who published an illustrated guide of the area in 1885, wrote, The natives have ceased to grind or cultivate the golden grain, preferring to cultivate the acquaintance of the Pākehā, and see what amount of gold they can grind out of him instead. The Tsuhaurangi of this period were said to be so affluent that they had replaced the shells in the eyes of the carved figures on their meeting house with gold sovereigns a story unsubstantiated by photographic evidence. In 1881, the government passed the Thermal Springs District Act, laying claim to a portion of Sulphur Point near Ohinemutu as the site for a sanatorium to promote and exploit the region's thermal attractions. New roads were being carved through the area to enable better access for travellers. The number of visitors to Rotomahana doubled every few months, and plans were afoot to build a hotel adjoining the pink terraces. In 1884, the artist Charles Blomfield negotiated a special fee of five guineas to paint the terraces over an extended period. On an earlier visit in 1875, the painter had encountered some hostility when he adventured to the terraces on his own. This time, he arranged for a meeting with the affected tribal representatives to agree on a lump-sum payment beforehand. He brought with him six-year-old daughter Mary and his own boat. Blomfield and his daughter spent six weeks at the lake, enjoying a view of the terraces that few visitors had or would experience again. He recalled, On a moonlit night, I would take the boat and, leaving my little Mary fast asleep in the tent, pull slowly around the lake. It was a most uncanny experience. The mysterious shroud of vapour, the absolute solitude, the strange, weird sounds on every hand, hissing, gurgling, moaning, sighing, seemed like some unknown world, while every few yards a wild duck would rise from the water with a startled cry and vanish into the gloom. He observed the tourists come and go and wrote, Every weekday, from 10 to 30 of them, mostly moneyed people from all parts of the world, they would arrive at the White Terrace about 11am, view the sights there, and have lunch at a little boiling spring where they ate potatoes and coda cooked in boiling water, cross over to the Pink Terrace, bathe there, and go straight back. In the weeks before Mount Tarawera erupted on the 10th of June 1886, a series of strange events took place. 
a plague of sickness had besieged the Tuhorangi for several months, probably typhoid, taking the lives of many of the district's youngest and brightest. On the morning of the 31st of May, 11 days before the eruption, Guide Sophia and a party of tourists arrived at the usual embarkation point on the edge of Lake Tarawera to find the creek dried up and the whaleboats stuck in the mud. As they stood there, in Sophia's account, the water came up with a crying sound all along the shores of the lake, floating the boats again, then rushed away just as quickly. The expedition proceeded when the lake level rose once more, but the guide, boatmen and tourists were unnerved. At the terraces the following week, Sophia noted unusual thermal activity. On her last visit, on the 7th of June, she described the unusually high level of the lake. She recorded seeing the geyser fatapoho, loosely translating to a pain in the stomach, sending out flames and smoke. I think this is my last day at Lake Rotomahana, she's reported as saying. The evening of the 9th of June, 1886, was clear enough in Te Wairua for Charles Hazard and two visiting surveyors to engage in amateur stargazing. They watched the occultation of the planet Mars, whereby Mars was eclipsed by the moon. They retired at 11pm. Chief Rangiheuea was spending the night on Puai Island, in the middle of Lake Rotomahana, with ten others, laid on the hot earth to keep out the cold and rheumatism. At Te Wairua, Sophia and her family were asleep in their home, a long, narrow whare with an unusually steep-pitched roof. The tohunga Tsuhoto lay in his small whare nearby, apparently sleeping also. But some say he was chanting karakia to unleash the punishing spirits of his ancestors. Just after midnight, all were awoken by a prolonged and increasing series of booming earthquakes that could be felt as far away as the Bay of Plenty coast. The eruption began at the Wahanga Dome at 1.30am. Those that had been shaken from their beds witnessed a rising black cloud above the mountain, cut by lightning and expelling electrical balls of fire. A violent earthquake at 2.10am immediately preceded an eruption column which rose over 9 kilometres above the mountain, followed at 2.30am by basalt scoria eruptions that ripped a fissure down the length of the mountain with a noise described by those as far away as the coast of Maketsu as if all creation was being blown up. Witnesses saw seven or more distinct columns of fire spread out into black clouds that glowed red from the reflection of the fiery pits below. At 3.30am, eruptions at Lake Rotomahana uncapped the large geothermal system in that area. The release of pressure allowed its waters to flash into steam, causing high-speed blasts of hot rock that swept horizontally outwards for 10 kilometres from the lake, pulverising the village of Te Ariki. At the same time, cold mud rained vertically out of the eruption cloud to bury Te Wairoa and the surrounding countryside as far as Ohinemutu. Thick volcanic ash spread for many miles further. Sophia Hinerangi's solid, steep-roofed whare proved a safe haven in the storm of rocks and mud that followed. Many of the townspeople gathered there for the night, once the roofs of every other building in the town, including the hotels, had collapsed beneath the weight of mud and ash. Sophia later claimed that her whare had been tapu'd. 
More than 150 people were killed and buried in the violent events of that night. The eruption was all but over by 5.30 in the morning, although dawn did not break until well into the afternoon. The devastation it revealed was unprecedented. Geologists describe Tarawera's eruption as unusual on a world scale. Surveyor S. Percy Smith found that the new level of what was once Lake Rotomahana was 250 feet lower than the former lake bed. The hole and its surroundings had been scooped out, leaving in its place a line of craters, mud geysers and fumaroles. Where the lakeside settlement of Moda once stood, a layer of mud 75 feet thick had blotted out the houses and the 39 people who lived in them. A large grove of karaka trees that had marked the village site was seen floating a mile out in Lake Tarawera. At the place where Te Ariki stood, houses and people were buried beneath 250 feet of mud. The tall, dense tikitapu bush had been stripped and flattened as if by gale-force winds. The terraces had been vaporised. In the next seven years, Lake Rotomahana refilled naturally with spring water to several times its original breadth and depth. Sophia Hinerangi continued her guiding career at Whakarewarewa Thermal Reserve, near the new government-developed tourism town of Rotorua. In later years, she encouraged younger women to take up tour guiding, which remained a lucrative form of employment for the now-exiled Tuhorangi people. She died at Whakarewarewa in 1911. The painted meeting house, Hinemihi, which had sheltered many from the deluge on that tumultuous night in 1886, was excavated from the volcanic ashen mud and exported to Britain in 1893, where it sits to this day in the manicured gardens of Clandon House in Surrey. That was an abridged version of Strange Days on Lake Rotomahana by Tim Bollinger from White Fungus magazine. The detail's long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Ka kite anō.